Rock and Roll Mom. 1988, Tarzan in Manhattan, 1989. I've seen that. Talking about Picket Fences in 1992 when he became a regular at the networks, directing Ally McBeal, Felicity, Chuck Everwood, The O.C., The Practiced, Charmed, and Jag. Man, people used to love that show Chuck, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Not on Time Stalkers, though, huh? Can't imagine why. (laughs) I'm not seeing it. Let me check the index. It wasn't even mentioned when he rattled off all the TV movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They talked about Jag before they talked about Time Stalkers. Come on. Now that's. Yeah, listen. That's Ta- Time Stalker is a much better film than Tarzan right, in right. Manhattan. I don't know what the hell Jag is. Least. Yeah, Ryan definitely doesn't know. He doesn't know Ian Curtis killed himself. He doesn't know what Jag is. <laughs> he didn't I know. assure you. The policeman isn't there to create disorder, the policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves. Oh, you want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the side. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the gauntlet i am one of your hosts andrew stasulis and i am joined tonight by eric marsh and ryan saunders for those who don't know the gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week and the other two are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic in one way or another. I was up this week. It was my turn to pick the topic. And uh, as I think I mentioned last week, uh, I came across this interesting thing on TikTok. There has been this this slew of, of time travelers creating accounts on TikTok and, and trying to, you know, use the platform to, to warn us about impending events. Uh, you know, it started with one, and like anything, you know, people just start, you know, replicating it. Suddenly, there's, there's a ton of time travelers on TikTok, and they're all coming back. And they're creating accounts, and they're posting things like, Joe Biden will win in 2024. Donald Trump will die in 2030. Jeff Bezos will become the world's first trillionaire. Like, these are the things that they're coming back to warn us. You know, if you could imagine, you know, you think you get this, this miracle of time travel, and, and that's the first thing you're going to come back and, and report to us. <laughs> <laughs> things that we all can safely probably predict or <laughs> guess, you know. Like, and also, what do you want us to do with that information? You know? Not helpful to Stop me personally. Stop it now, yeah. right, you know. Yeah, not helpful at all. And I love it, too. A lot of them are, like, the names are just, like, the account names are, like, I am a time traveler or time traveler 2072, things like that. So, anyway, I've been having a lot of fun with those and looking at some of the bonkers predictions, like, you know, a meteor is going to hit the Earth in 2034 and wipe out half the U.S. All Ah. right, Nostradamus. Yeah. Anyway, um, it just got me thinking about how much I like 
movies that feature time travel, that play with that idea. So I asked the boys to bring me films that depict that subject matter. Now, I should say, too, I was very explicit that I wanted them to bring me movies in which, you know, um, the, the time travel was a matter of some sort of science or, to be more precise, science fiction. Um, but, you know, that characters are sort of like aware, like the time travel is an acknowledged element of the film, because I do know there are plenty of movies out there, movies that I even like, in which characters sort of move through time in a fluid way, and, and you know, it isn't always necessarily like, uh, you know, there's an actual machine or a process that, that that happens in the film. So I said, bring me movies where where the time travel is acknowledged in the film in some way, shape, or form. And you both delivered. We got a couple of, of time travel films, a couple of low-budget time travel films by, <laughs> by, uh, by cool... Uh, auteurs, maybe vulgar auteurs, but uh, I had a blast with both of them. I had a lot of laughs uh, for very different reasons in both of these movies. So we might as well just roll them out. So let's start with the earlier of the two films. Marsh, tell us what you brought to the table. Well, I was at first, you know, leaning, uh, as I often do, towards Alan Renee's uh, smoking, no smoking, until you issued uh, the, <laughs> time, the, the time travel directive one, uh, in which it was like, yeah, no, not just like inexplicably traveling through time in a Alain Rene way, uh, but more literal. I immediately sort of jumped to... Uh, you know, what just popped into my head. And it was a movie that I watched last year for the first time and was kind of blown away by it uh, in certain ways. And I thought it would be a very fun movie to talk about uh, in relation to time travel. And so the film I selected is Beyond the Time Barrier from 1960, directed by the King of the Bees, Edgar G. Ulmer. And for those unfamiliar with Ulmer, he uh, was just that, a legendary maker of B-movies throughout the classic Hollywood era. He had a big, you know, hit early in his career with The Black Cat at Universal, uh, but subsequent personal dealings, like uh, having sex with Carl Lemley's nephew's wife, uh, <laughs> led to him being sort of blacklisted from the major studios. And, uh, you know, he originally, of course, uh, you know, he's from the Austrian Empire and uh, came of age in the you know, the Weimar uh, film industry, right? And so he allegedly can't uh, really like take anything he ever said as truth, but <laughs> allegedly, you know, he worked with Murnau and, and, and Lang and all those guys and then came over to uh, Hollywood where he became a prolific director of uh, very low budget movies and later, you know, celebrated by critics at Cahiers de Cinema and beyond as this sort of like diamond in the rough, uh, an auteur with 
the lowest of budgets and the tightest of shooting schedules. How did he do it? You know, that kind of thing. And so this film is actually uh, one of his last films and one of his last American films. And it was part of a two-film deal uh, that he got involved in with some some Texas money. <laughs> some uh, Texans, <laughs> yeah. I love it. And... <clears throat> Yeah, it actually, like, circles all all the way around to some, like, ex-military major who had, like, made a bunch of money and, and was the primary investor. Uh, and Ulmer directed two films back-to-back, -back, this and The Amazing Transparent Man. And so Beyond the Time Barrier is a $125,000 science fiction movie where, uh, yes, a man travels through time and space into the future. Uh, and it is you know, very notable for, yeah, being shot in Texas at the 1936 Centennial Fairgrounds, as well as the Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. And so it has uh, these, like, bizarre production values, and of course, Ulmer came from, you know, set decoration and art direction early in his career, and so it's designed... Uh, in an insane way for very little money and has a lot of flair in terms of its uh, visual conceptions, you know? Yeah, it's... Uh I don't know how, yeah, plot-wise, I mean, does it really, does it really matter too much? Um, this film was uh, produced by its star, Robert Clark, who is, was famous for being in lots of bad 1950s science fiction films, including The Man from Planet X, which... Ulmer had directed 10 years prior to this. So they had a working relationship and Clark brought Ulmer on board and the whole thing really was a, a family affair. Ulmer called in all the favors to get this film made on time and on budget. He brought in Jack Pierce to do the makeup. The man that designed Frankenstein, folks, on this film for oh my god for we'll talk about that because he didn't do all of the the makeup as we will discuss <laughs> we will discuss. Ulmer uh, yeah. brought in Ernst Fegte, a legendary emigre art director from Germany from the great German expressionist era, and. Another old pal, Meredith Nicholson, the creator of Panavision cameras in the 1950s, an old Hollywood cinematographer. And they all together, for no money, made this time-traveling movie. Uh, Plot-wise, it is, I think, what you would expect from a 1950s science fiction film. It is essentially preoccupied with a lot of uh, nuclear anxiety and space travel anxiety and those kind of post-war concerns uh, of that era that are very much at the forefront of Ulmer's mind here, especially uh, nuclear testing and A-bombs and all that that sort of implies. And that's kind of the backdrop of the futuristic world that Major Allison travels to. And we'll, we'll break down the politics and the factions and the triangles later. <laughs> so many triangles. So many, yes. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's Beyond the Time Barrier from 1960. Thank you, Marsh. Ryan, why don't you tell us what you brought? Sure. So when I was looking through various films about time travel, it sort of felt like um, 
I had a bit of option paralysis. There were so many great options, so many films that seemed really unique because people sort of take it in, in crazy directions. Yet my mind kept going back to one film in particular that to <laughs> me seemed like it probably was playing it a bit safe, wasn't too outlandish in its its approach to time travel or, or that intense, um, but one that seemed that it might ultimately be pleasant. And, uh, you know, people who have, have listened to this show before, you know, and perhaps if they've listened to multiple episodes of the show, one thing that I have been interested in, in like my approach to programming some of these films and things I've just generally interested in as, as a guy who likes movies is I'm always so surprised when there are these great filmmakers in America, especially filmmakers of color, who are just thrown out of the system by our racist industry. People that show such talent and make such beautiful films, and instead they get relegated to making things like TV productions or just generally TV episodes. And so now this will sort of round out a trilogy that I've uh, created uh, on the gauntlet with um, three filmmakers who I think are three of the best filmmakers that have ever worked in America. That is Charles Burnett, Ernest Dickerson, and now Michael Schultz, each of them in a little journey into the world of TV cinema. And um, so this film is by Michael Schultz, the great filmmaker who made Car Wash and Cooley High, two masterpieces of American cinema. He's also made a bunch of other really fun, wonderful films like Crush Groove. Um, he's also made some TV films like Tarzan in Manhattan. And uh, <laughs> this one... You know, not one of his strongest efforts, but by God, I, I had a very pleasant evening watching Time Stalkers from 1987. And beyond the fact that, you know, Michael Schultz directed it, which was obviously a, a huge appeal for me, especially in, in terms of the gauntlet, Marsh and I have like a deep affection for, for Michael Schultz. I remember seeing Car Wash at the Chicago Film Society and just walking out of that thinking like capital M masterpiece like I've never seen anything like this, like this movie rocks. And you know, I didn't walk out of Time Stalkers with a capital M masterpiece, but I, I, again, I, I did have a big grin. And the reason I was, I was particularly drawn to it was because it also has some nice late Klaus Kinski uh, work in this film. And it was just a, a recipe that was too delicious, I, I couldn't resist. So Time Stalkers from 1987 uh, is based off of a short story by someone named Ray Brown, uh, who a short story called Tintype. And the titular tintype of the short story plays a pivotal role in this film as we follow William Devane uh, playing someone named Scott McKenzie. William Devane, I mean, maybe this may just be open for debate, someone I sort of consider to be like an affable hack. You know, someone who's like rather pleasant on screen, but I don't think he's like a great performer by any stretch. But he plays someone named Scott McKenzie who's, you know, a real buff of the, the Old West. You know, he's he collects antiques and he's a college professor and he's a real specialist you know you can go to him with almost any question uh, about the old west and in one of his acquisitions he gets this chest that includes a tintype supposedly from 1886 but upon closer inspection he notices that deep in the background of that shot is klaus kinski and that's not necessarily what tips him off right away that's klaus kinski but instead he notices that klaus kinski is holding a Magnum 357 that dates to 1980. And he becomes obsessed trying to figure out how could a gun from 1980 appear in a photograph from 1886. 
This then turns into a time-traveling extravaganza. We end up in the year 2586 as we learn about Klaus Kinski and his time hopping. And we ourselves go back to 1886 itself, to the Old West. It's a very silly movie. It is very clearly a TV production that was just sort of, you know, put out based off of a short story. It is full of some really, really odd flourishes. And, you know, the other two films we did, Finding Buck McHenry and Future Sport, I think did showcase a lot of interesting concerns of like the auteur working in the TV world. And we had some like alternate readings of especially Future Sport and how they were able to kind of break through. I don't have any, you know, really special takes about Michael Schultz uh, and his preoccupations kind of breaking through time stalkers. You know, this is this is some pretty routine work. But regardless, I typically find his movies very pleasant. And Molly and I had a very nice evening watching Time Stalkers. So I'm excited to talk about it. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you both. You know, something that I, I say to my students in my... Um, my aesthetics class, my time, space, and memory class is that, you know, we time travel every day in our minds, right? In our memories. I think it's a very natural thing for us to, to look back at, at moments in our life when we wish we could have that one back, you know, when we could zig instead of zag, or even just you know, imagining us in a previous time, a previous era. We often think, oh, you know, if I knew then what I know now. And I think it's it's very natural as humans that that we then fantasize and 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 time travel stories, time travel films, time travel media is just this sort of manifestation of the power of memory, the power of history, the power of of hindsight. That you know, these are films which which in some respects seek to to alter the present uh, through the past or through the future, right? That's often what we see in in so many time travel films. And I think both of these films are playing with that, like a lot of other time travel films, but in very odd sort of ways. <laughs> and it was it was interesting for me to try to track, you know, like what the time travel in these films, was for, really. Like, what was it all about, you know? Was it about, in the case of, of Beyond the Time Barrier, 1960, or, or was there, there something else at play here? And in the case of Time Stalkers, I, I really was like, what, what, is go like, what is the time travel for in this movie? Yeah. And I, I, I guess that's something that we can discuss as the evening goes on. Like, you know, was it about William Devane getting to live his fantasy or, or was it really about, you know, what's his name? Joel Cole, John Cole, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Cole. Joseph Cole, Dr. Joseph Cole. Like, you know, why was time travel uh, a big part of this? Um, but, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think both of these movies sort of kind of defied a lot of other time travel films for me in a, in an interesting way, um, that, uh, yeah, kind of surprised me. I, I actually did have a lot of fun with both of these movies. I too found myself asking a lot of questions about motivation for time travel in both of these films. Cause I also feel that both of them 
adhere to their plots in an interesting way where they're not tempted by the branching paths that are typical for science fiction films. Eventually in Beyond the Time Barrier, when he is starting to come to terms with the fact that he's traveled through time and then eventually starts deciphering a way he could potentially go back, at no point is he ever considering, well, maybe I could go way back or I could try this a little bit differently and explore other times throughout history. He's just so dead set on getting back to his time. And even throughout... Time Stalkers, it seems as though with the total control that they have over their time travel, because they have a literal device where you can plug in dates and times uh, pretty specifically, you know, maybe not to the minute, but it does, you know, you can do it to the day. At no point whenever things are going wrong, are they deciding, hold on, let's just like go back a day and try that again. They like they respect the branching timeline path that they're on and they see it through to the end until there's again a, a little bit of a reversal, but that's that's extra details we'll get to later. But I was thinking about then that in Time Stalkers they're obs- obsessed with the specifically William Devane is obsessed with the idea of time travel and he is somewhat intoxicated by it, but he's never exploiting it. You know, he's never like having a laugh with the time travel. They're so focused on the tasks that are at hand in both films. Well, when I think about, you know, why these films are made, I think I think I find two very different impulses. On the one hand, I find Ulmer's film is, you know, it's a warning, right? That's what the purpose of, of time travel mm-hmm. is, because the character goes to the future 2024 and he finds a wasteland. There's been a plague, but really the plague is the result of atomic testing and the destruction of the ozone layer, right? So Nuclear dust. Yeah, nuclear dust. We love that shit. Rain over me, you know? <laughs> and like... So so there, like, it seems, to me, it seems obvious, right? Especially with, like, the ending, which we'll, we'll get to. And on the other hand, when I look at Time Stalkers, I look at a very, like, focus-grouped television film that is trying to combine basically back to the future in Indiana Jones. Like, that's what I see. Mm-hmm. This guy is a college professor, number one, LOL, right? Uh, Andy and I, you know, look at that guy's fucking house. He's got, like, this fucking mansion, which is like a barn, and he's got, like, a shooting gallery where he does quick draws for fun. He's got other, like, structures on this massive property. And, yeah, he just, like, has all this, like, antique Wild West gear. It's a beautiful home. Yeah, like Indiana Jones, you know. He's uh, this sort of, like, college professor slash man of action and it's like this total like wish fulfillment fantasy of you know (laughs) white males or whatever where it's like yeah this guy knows a lot and he can fucking quick draw you Mm -hmm. know and i see yeah i see the time travel simply as an excuse to go to the old west and have a genre time uh and that's fine look that's fine with me i want to go to the old west with michael schultz too you know (laughs) yeah it's it's very it's very obvious i think when you sort of like look at both of these productions being what they are these these very kind of low rent operations i feel like sometimes you know 
time travel is very convenient to those kinds of things because it is this this total economy. And right in the case of Ulmer, this was like him trying to just like sandwich as many productions together in as short of a time as possible. So we kind of look at what do we got? We've you've got science fiction stuff. We've got science fiction gear. We've got props we can reuse. We can reuse footage from other things, yes. which is very amusing at a certain moment of the film. <laughs> and I feel like it's the same thing for time stalkers where you know they're shooting on these sort of like backlots oh it's and such a backlot movie dude i like triple underlined <laughs> how much it obviously it was backlots oh i mean to 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 give you an example of just like how how low rent the backlot usage is. I was watching this with my girlfriend, Hillary, and like at a certain point, you know, when they're they're in the West or something, Hillary goes, oh, I've been there. And I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah, it's a studio in Burbank. <laughs> it's, it's so recognizable that it hasn't been adorned or changed or altered in any way, that it is that recognizable to be like, yeah, that is the generic West set in Burbank, California, you know, not, not, Oh, Colorado or, you know, something just, just this generic West town in, in Burbank. No surprises there. That's been used in (laughs) a thousand other productions. On the flip side, you know, when they uh, constructed the sets, of Beyond the Time Barrier, they made them all movable. And so the whole set is like constructed out of these like inverted pyramids, which are, yes, triangles. Uh, and all those inverted pyramids could be rearranged. And you can even tell once there's like a- an action scene, you know, at the climax of the movie, that they're just moving these like columns and pretending it's another room. Yeah. And they're just shooting in the same room. Yeah. I mean, it really is like stretched as thin as possible as a production, but also fucking genius, you know, in in that sense, because they're always finding like new ways to arrange things, even though it's like very clearly the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite bit of trivia that I read about the locations for beyond the time barrier was the fact that most of these rooms are pretty plain, but there's one like really nice swanky. I don't know if you want to call it apartment or like suite or like little villa, but it actually kind of reminds me of the layout from future sport that really like swanky (laughs) place that, that they live in. And, uh, but there's this beautiful pool. And I, I read that, that, the pool that's featured in the film was actually the motel uh, that the production was staying at when they, when they were filming there. And I like the idea, you know, you saying Hillary watching, saying like, I know that's in Burbank. I know where that is. I, I think of George Kuchar, like watching this movie and saying like, I've stayed at that motel, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That, well, I had that moment when uh, they flash 600 years in the future in time stalkers. And I immediately yelped being like, this is in Los Angeles plays itself because <laughs> uh-huh. the future scenes in Time Stalkers are shot in the Ennis house from every movie ever, the Frank Lloyd Wright building. Mm. And uh, I remember very clearly like seeing Los Angeles plays itself. And there's these scenes of Kinski just like yelling in a science fiction context with like, you know, the Ennis house, like bricks, like, you know, <laughs> on, on, in the background or whatever. The Ennis house apparently transcends space and time. It could be fictionally located in Washington or Osaka. 
It could play an ancient villa. A 19th century haunted house. A contemporary mansion. A 21st century apartment building. Or a 26th century science lab where Klaus Kinski invents time travel. I got my blood into this! And now we have it, look, right in the palm of my hand. Time! We can go back to the past and change it as we wish. So, very big, yeah, moment of recognition yeah. for me to finally see the full source of uh, that bit that Tom Anderson is obviously wow. ridiculing. Oh, yeah. Yes. Dude, yes. time, space, and memory in, in play already. Look at that. <laughs> you know? It's all folding in on itself. But yeah, you know, it's in, 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 in addition, it's, it's also, as I discovered reading more about the production, Ulmer's production for Beyond the Time Barrier, like, you know, again, just using what you have, uh, that they basically, because of these Texas guys and this major you're talking about, they were given, like, the keys to an entire Air Force base. And it seems to me very much that, like, they're just shooting around the day-to-day goings-on of that Air Force base. And and it does give it some scale, but it's it's very clearly then that they were just, like, literally just using whatever was at their disposal. And I think it's always the mark of these kinds of vulgar auteurs to say like, yes, they didn't have money. They didn't have millions and millions of dollars. And what did they do with it? And I got to give it up to both of these films that with their threadbare production, that is easy to dunk on. You know, it's easy to be like, yeah, bitch, you're broke. Look at this shit. You know, it is like a very like, pleasant ride because these are skilled directors who are, you know, framing these things in, in clever ways. I mean, the mise-en-scene of Beyond the Time Barrier at times is like pretty sharp. I mean, like it is not. I think so. Some like, you know, Ed Wood style clapboard garbage. I mean, no offense to Ed Wood, but yeah, like, take it easy. I mean, there is like framing in depth and, and with the triangles. I mean, like there were times where I just like paused it to be like, there's like 12 different triangles. There are frames within frames within frames going on here. I mean, like both of these films in their own ways, I thought showed the mark of very talented men behind those cameras. My favorite shot in Behind the Time Barrier, as it relates to what we're talking about, just using what was available, when he first arrives to the future and they're trying to communicate the fact that this is like a destroyed civilization, a plague has gone through it, perhaps it's even been irradiated, it's hard to tell. There's this great image of Bill wearing his suit that kind of his like his flight suit kind of looks like the dune skin suit i almost thought like it was like it's a weird sort of sci-fi suit for like what he was trying to accomplish and he he's like walking down the road and there is uh this gap in the asphalt um, that is framed in a very clever way, of course, where you can't see beyond this gap from the left or right of the frame because it would probably just reveal that there was grass he could have walked of on. Of course. And I like the, the idea of them finding that and just thinking. It reminded me of making movies as a kid, you know, where you'd think like, oh, there's that like fucked up part of the road 
maybe if we frame it this way, it'll look like he's crawling through devastation. So we get this shot of him just walking up to this little broken part of the asphalt, climbing down like it's this big event, and then like <laughs> climbing up the other side when it's clear we know like he could have just walked around that outside of the frame. But I, I, I like the inspiration there. You know, it's just using what we have in Texas. Let's look at the roads around us and let's see how we can use that to our advantage. The whole abandoned air force base section of the film that you're talking about ryan i think is is brilliant and when reading more about the film i i read that it's it was literally as you described making a movie like as like a child because they were given access to this and then at least in this conditions they were just like walking around and Mm -hmm. Ulmer was just going like oh this is a good shot this is a good shot and they were just improvising all of that stuff with the structures at the base including my favorite moment is when he strikes the piano And there's like this big noise and, you know, like echo and and resonance to it. That piano was there. That was just a found object. I'm sure. And it like is incorporated into this sequence like brilliantly in this desolate, you know, future uh, sort of whatever dystopia or landscape that he's found himself in. You know, again, I I think about so many like science fiction films that have astronomically large budgets, you know, and especially in the the contemporary age where we have CGI and, and, you know, you can basically just put an army of, of, you know, computer drones on anything and create these incredibly elaborate future scapes and stuff. And I just find now for me, I, 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 especially in, in reflecting on, on a film like this, that is so threadbare, it doesn't give me a sense of like wonder or awe that it's clearly, you know, millions of dollars have been poured into, uh, to, to elicit that, to make us go to gasp in front of the screen. And, and like, just a moment like that of, of sort of looking at our world and and finding spaces, you know, finding ordinary spaces, but but trying to film them a certain way, shoot them a certain way, capture them a certain way, provide context around them uh, is just like at times now, I think so much more magical for me, so much more impressive for me, for filmmakers who are capable of doing that. You know, thinking of even like uh, Godard in Alphaville, like just running around with no money in Paris and being like, yeah, I can make this look like 200 years in the future. I was charmed by Time Stalker's Ring of Fire that appeared, you know, when someone <laughs> traveled through time. It's like, yeah, they have some chintzy computer effects as well, but mostly it's just like, yeah, this little ring of fire, you know, yeah. on the ground, this nice little symbol. There, they traveled through time, you know, and now we're in the Old West. That's <laughs> all we need to see. I mean, Michael Schultz knows that there's power in, in just little fake lightning. You know, that's like one of the easiest ways to communicate that something science fiction related is happening. He also does this really weird thing whenever it transitions between times where I almost wonder how they shot it as if they lit a bunch of firecrackers off on like a black cloth so that they could like do the superimposition very easily. But whenever we like hop back and forth between time and time stalkers, there's this like smattering of light as these firecrackers seem to be going off on the screen. And it also, I'm like, almost 100% positive. They are like lifting one of the sound effects from Star Wars, from like one of those spaceships uh, every single time. And it's like so grating every time it happens, but I also find it kind of funny. And I was thinking the opening credits of Beyond the Time Barrier, do you think George Lucas, 
you know, I'm not like super seasoned with uh, science fiction movies, but like, do you think he lifted that like as part of his design? He loves old movies. Oh, hell yeah. Is, yeah. It's an upward scroll. Yeah. It's like identical. You know, so, yeah. they didn't kiss me deadly as well. But. Yeah. Oh, OK. OK, that's good. To but know. it is. I, I noted that it's an upward scroll. Yeah, I do want to return a little bit, though, just to the just to the beginnings of both of these films that I think are evocative in, in very different ways. I, I, I didn't want my preamble on Time Stalkers to be too stuffed, so I left out like a major plot detail of, of this film. Yeah. When, when Time Stalkers opens and we're introduced to this professor who, as Marsh has described very well, is like this man of action, right? As also being totally obsessed with the Old West. We're introduced to him having like a shootout with his son, one that he is treating so historically accurate that when his son shoots him in the back, he chastises him by saying, you know, what? this isn't historically accurate. Wait a second. That's completely out of character. Doc Holliday was not a back shooter. You had the front covered. Listen, if you're not going to play fair, I'm going to gobble your face up. Oh, no. Okay, children. Time for the real world. Yeah, well, don't bother packing a lunch for me. I'm just going to eat some of this kid's head. That immediately made me uh, very suspicious of his credentials as a historian because he's saying, you know, like, oh, Doc Holliday was not a back shooter and, like, contemporary historians have actually looked back at Doc Holliday and said, well, he wasn't really this big virtuoso gunslinger. He might not actually have killed a lot of men outside of the gunfight at the OK Corral. And in fact, one of the points that a lot of historians have brought up is that he was such a raging alcoholic, it would be very hard to have the kind of hand-eye coordination that, you know, myth and legend has given him. And there's like a famous gunfight that was like unearthed where he was very drunk and trying to shoot a guy and like shot some very expensive mirror that cost like $5,000 and ended up just shooting the guy in the foot and like that was it. Then they like wrestled the gun away from Doc Holliday. So already for me, I was sort of, you know, calling this guy out on on what a good historian he actually was. Seems like he... uh idealizes the old west just a little bit well i would say it does befit his character he is like a legend obsessive you know oh yeah to the point where he you know kind of folds himself into a legend but we'll we'll get there later so (laughs) after this introduction where he's got a little shootout with his son they've got these like cap guns that they're just like constantly firing off at each other and he's like decked out he's wearing his antiques he's got a holster belt on he's got a cowboy hat so then his wife and son are like going off I can't remember where it is, presumably to school or something like that. But, you know, some sinister music kicks in and we've got a car speeding around the corner. We see (laughs) two beer cans (laughs) shoot out of the window of this car. We never see the driver, but we see these beer cans and we know like, oh, dear God, this man is drinking. This man is a drunk driver. And as his as his wife and son are backing out of the driveway there's this big mound of dirt talk about like found objects i'm assuming this was probably <laughs> just there there's this big mound of dirt from some neighboring construction how many cars have been flipped on that mound you oh, know yeah. specifically Truly. probably yeah. like 50 episodes of television you know that perfectly planed <laughs> ramp <laughs> and yeah that, that drunk driver takes off his car spins in the air crashes into william devane's wife and child lighting them on fire, they're dead. And I was thinking about how throughout this film, like the moment that time travel is introduced 
and he's shown how it works, how he isn't immediately like, oh my God, like we got to go back and save my wife and son. Mm -hmm. Instead, he's just obsessed with his thesis because it's like Western related, (laughs) you know? And we got to like bring that part of it up. Like, okay, again, because this guy is is the, the phoniest um, professor I've ever seen. I mean, like, yes, Indiana Jones <laughs> is more of an academic than this yeah. fucking guy is because he's this really bad, shitty historian of the West, uh, you know, who gets a lot of facts and details wrong. Uh, he's really just, you know, a, a TV guy. That's my impression. You know, he grew up watching Gunsmoke yeah. and, and, you know, Have Gun Will Travel, and he's tried to make a... He's, you know, again... Academic largesse that this yeah. guy, yeah, is is got tenure some fucking where you know at probably goddamn Berkeley or who knows Burbank where University, Burbank <laughs> University, yeah. But but honestly, like that's a funny point, Ryan, because like yes, the movie opens up. It's it's a really kind of crazy opening because it does actually open up on the car chase. Yeah, like that's how the movie opens with this sort of like action car chase, and you're kind of like, what is this movie about again? Are those the first images? Wow, that's I mean that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. I didn't remember. We start with the car chase, and then we go to his home. Mm. So it's like, oh, what's this car chase about? And then we get this idyllic home life or whatever, right? But yes, his son and wife die in this fiery car crash. And then like we kind of fast forward a little bit to you know, presumably a year later, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's just shooting, he's just doing quick draw in his backyard, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, very much. I thought like Willem Devane and like rolling thunder mode, yeah. you know, oh, like yeah. I was thinking this is vengeance. Is this what this is all about? You know, yeah. he's going to start hunting down the, the people responsible for this or whatever. But anyway, like we then get this whole thing with his life and, and it just seems like his day to day existence is just, goofing around with guns, going to uh, Western memorabilia auctions with his general friend, played by John Ratzenberger, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 His friend, the general. Yeah. Himself a real expert in the cavalry. You know, he's got like his network of friends that all have their specializations. But, I mean, in addition, I got to say, like, his friend shows up, the general, he gets driven to his his house. I mean, he's in uniform. He's in an official military vehicle. He's got his driver there, and he's like, are you ready to go to the auction? You know, we got a big day ahead of us. We're going to go by. And I was thinking, like, man, what is going on here? It's like you got the professor who's, who's just fucking around shooting guns in his backyard. And is this where our tax dollars are going? Like, so this general can just, like, go yeah. to an auction? Like, what the fuck is, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous. But then, you know, he meets this, you know, he, he gets involved in this whole time travel plot. He's got his cool little sports car with the personalized oh my God. license plate that says fast draw FST draw. <laughs> Dude. Cringe. And like, he meets this time traveler, babe. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. This like hot time <laughs> traveler, babe. And I was just like, man, how much has this guy's life improved because his wife and son died in this fiery car crash. He gets to go off on adventures. He gets to hang out with his army buddy, like buying whatever the fuck he wants. He doesn't have to worry about his kids, you know, college tuition anymore. He can just spend a thousand dollars on a, a trunk full of Western crap. I actually was thinking, man, I feel like, you know, things picked up wow. when his wife and son died. That's a really good read on it, actually. I, and I, I like the idea that he doesn't even humor the idea of going back in time to save his, his son because yeah. he just like is so 
totally content. I mean, he never shows any signs of grief pretty much throughout no. this movie. He's just always happy <laughs> to be there. He's happy to have like a little quest oh, yeah. once it lands in his lap. Especially when George shows up. He's just like grinning. Yeah. Like, hey. I, I, I reflected on it. I was like, I'm like, man, this guy's life rocks now that they're out of the picture. And like, he is not that crushed by it, you know? But also... The funny thing is you say, like, oh, he doesn't really express any grief. There's only one moment that I noticed where he really does have this kind of, like, moment of of grief for the, for the past and things that are gone. <laughs> and that's when he goes to Crossfire, which was, like, the, the Wild West village that's now closed down. And he just, like, looks at the dilapidated, like, frontier right. town. And he just says, in the, sa- the saddest delivery of any line he had in the entire movie, You used to be able to bring your whole family here. Whatever. It was like... <laughs> He's sad that the the Wild West, you know, show village is closed. That's really it, you know? He is the biggest fucking dork I think we've had on the pod so far. Like, everything about him is just the corniest, dorkiest thing. Like you said, Marsh, it's like Grown-up dorky alert. Yeah, like this weird, like, wish fulfillment, but it's just, it's so, so corny. He's the whitest, dorkiest fucking guy I think I've encountered yet on this podcast. So I was cracking up the whole movie uh, just simply because everything he did was just the most like cringe worthy shit. And it's funny because Marsh and I, we have like shared, you know, thinking about Michael Schultz with some of his other films. Like, how is he sneaking in his sensibility? We think like carbon copy. It's like you just need to read that film as Schultz presenting this insane depiction of white people and how like cursed their brains are. He's doing something similar with William Devane here, I guess. If we want to give Schultz some credit for sneaking in some of his own ambitions, I don't know. I mean, to me, the most obvious way that, you know, Schultz manifests is in his depiction of the Old West, there are African-Americans presented in a very matter-of-fact way. And I don't think that's an accident that there's, like, black side characters in this movie that's, like, Mm -hmm. a white male fantasy. And in particular... Uncle Phil from yes. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air plays a blacksmith uh, in two scenes, which is a nice little treat. Yeah. Uh, and I go, there's Schultz, you know, there's Schultz, along with, of course, like the clean mise-en-scene, the, the light comic touch, maybe too light sometimes, <laughs> you know. Not pleasant uh, enough, you know. Yeah. Man, and then how about just like his uh, documentary interest in that Western memorabilia auction? Because that has to have like just been happening right no no I mean, that's, dude, so again, that's just some field that they just set up a bunch of props well, from from but, you know oh, sure i guess they are all just like wanted props. dead or alive that were sitting yeah, around you know in mean, a westerns warehouse. have been made dude <laughs> the, the guy who was like running the auction seemed like that's what he actually did wait 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 isn't the guy that was running the auction what what was his name like Cowboy John or some shit like no, that? No, that was not Texas John Cody. That was not Texas John. That's the guy with the saddle computer chair. Yes. Oh my god! Dropping a bomb right here on the pod. <laughs> that maybe you know, thinking about like ultimate gauntlet moments. The hardest I've ever laughed watching a gauntlet movie was when Texas John Cody, you know, <laughs> getting to sign onto his computer. Just his computer chair is a horse's saddle. And he just like sits on that. No oh. back support. Definitely not ergonomic. Well, maybe it is, <laughs> sort of is. He has to like maintain his posture. Dear God. 
I, I've never been more embarrassed of my race, I think, than like <laughs> watching these like just Professor Buffalo Bill and, and Colonel Cowboy going around. I mean, like it was I mean, you know, to, again though, I think yeah, maybe we yeah, we're we're definitely gonna read this as it was intentional or he's working against the script. Because even when we were watching it, I, I watched it with Kyle and she goes this family is so fucking annoying, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, like they, they suck, you yeah. know, like that's evident. So, yeah. I mean, it's all, yeah, it's all coming together as we talk it Listen, out here. It tracks you know? with his, it was specifically with carbon copy. The approach is pretty <laughs> similar, I think. Yeah. So the, I, I think we're, it's open to interpretation. Now I want to switch gears here and, and I'll do my best to, to break down beyond the time barrier because it's actually quite easy to do so because guess what guys, it's all about threes. Mm-hmm. So as <laughs> major bill, Ground control to Major Bill as Major, <laughs> as Major Bill slips through time and into the future. He is taken prisoner into the Citadel, the subterranean uh, city, I guess, uh, that is run by the Supreme, this old Russian man who appeared in hundreds of films in the Vladimir 20- Sokolov <laughs> yeah, in the twenties, thirties, and forties, uh, and. Basically there, you know, everything, everything is, is slowly, uh, teased out to our befuddled hero. Who's just like, I'm, I'm from America, (laughs) (laughs) which is great. Um, but ultimately, yeah. So he first meets the, you know, the first threesome, which is the Supreme, uh, the captain who's sort of like the head of security played by former football player and stuntman, Red Morgan, uh, and Princess Tririni. Again, uh, this is a detail I read. Her name was Tririni, and once Ulmer came up with the triangles idea, he rearranged it, so it's T-R-I-R-E-N-E. Tririni, played by Darlene Tompkins, who is the last fertile person alive mm-hmm. in this future dystopia. And so that that trio wants, uh, you know, Bill to get it on uh, with her. Um, should also point out that everyone in the Citadel is deaf mute because of the radiation, except for the Supreme and the Captain. Uh, and... A few other people we will eventually. And the, yes, the other threesome. Yes, and and then we're also introduced to uh, a shady group of scientists who are you know held captive while also being scientists. Uh, and there's three of three them: of them yeah. General Carl Cruz, wow. Doctor Borman, and Captain Markova, played by. Edgar G. Elmer's daughter. And they are all time travelers as well from the future of Bill's world. So they're from different times. Uh, Markova's from the early 70s and the other two are from 1994. Uh, And they're trying to like figure out how to get the fuck out of this place. Uh, And they latch on to major bill here to uh make that happen and so everyone's kind of like 
trying to convince him of these these things while uh, wandering through these like all deep space triangular <laughs> corridors. Mm-hmm. I think it's like it, you know again it's it's easy to like point out the 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 yeah the, the bald caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, it's easy to point out a lot of things in the movie, but but I actually kind of really enjoyed that construction. You know where he's introduced and at first it's like oh shit. You know, like this is bad. And then like he we kind of go like, oh, well, this girl seems nice. And and like, yeah, he seems like a very virile American <laughs> red blooded dude. So. So, yeah, like, sure. Repopulate the planet like major major Allison is actually going to be able to contribute something. And and that's cool. And then when we do get introduced to the scapes, as they're known, the the trio of scientists, they're sort of like, oh, man everything they said to you was bullshit. And, and we start to go like, yeah, all right, get on board with them. Like it does like shift back and forth in this triangle that, that emerges that we kind of don't know who to side with. And I think he handles that very well. Like we do find ourselves suspicious of both sides of both parties and our sympathies shifting along with Allison. And I guess you could say if, if, he's not a part of the triangle than the other third part of the triangle are the mutants, yeah. the, the, the Soviet masses, you know, the Soviet <laughs> hordes who are, who are bloodthirsty and just ready to get let out of their cage. And I did love this little detail. I don't know if either of you picked it up, but like, you know, to sort of scare him into submission, the first thing that the captain does is throw Major Allison into the cage with the mutants that they've taken prisoner, and they immediately set upon him, you know, like, ah, we're crazy mutant guys, you know? <laughs> and and it's like, yeah, you'll get torn apart if, if these guys have their way with you. And then, it, then the captain, like, takes him out and is like, all right, come, come on, we just wanted to scare you a little bit, I guess. And they take him to go speak with the Supreme again, and I don't know if either of you picked it up, but like the guards, when they like take him out, they just leave the cage door open for a while, like for a long while. No one shuts the door in the shop, you know, and then they just cut away. And I was like thinking, why didn't they just spin it, spill it out of there? They just left the goddamn cage door open. And these guys seem rabid, you know, they're ready to ready to go, ready to pop off. I love the reverse shot of the stock footage of lepers. Oh my God. Unreal. Those mutants. Yeah, it's funny Incredible, that they dude. like the mutants like felt compelled, you know, not only did they not escape, but they just they never leave that stairwell. They they're not like, you know, up against the bars, grabbing on, trying to reach out and grab everybody. They they feel as though they have a barrier, that they're not gonna like ascend any further because it might destroy the illusion that below them are another like <laughs> thousand mutants just waiting for blood man yeah i don't even know like where to start with some of this stuff it's it's all really fascinating i mean there's the the fact that she's a deaf mute who can also read minds read minds so like it's never (laughs) quite clear if she is just lip reading or the, the fact that she can read minds and knows what people are gonna say she can kind of then hear in her head what everyone's saying because she never shows signs of being deaf i mean nobody does in this movie my favorite part about that is that like when he when it's explained to him like okay everyone here is is a deaf mute like he then in all of his interactions, Major Allison with everyone, he will like say something to them and then it's like, oh shit, like he realizes like, oh, they're deaf mute. So then he just says it again slower. 
Like, right. he, like he gets like brought into this thing and I like, give him like clothes or whatever. And like his servant is just like hands him the shit. And he's like, that looks great. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And he like, yeah. just, he's just like, <laughs> do they all read minds? I mean, like, it's the- this weird situation where for some reason, like uh, in 2024, like less than a hundred years in the future, like sign language is now a dead language that like none of them are able to utilize that to communicate with each other. Bit perplexing. Yeah, they built that that very impressive citadel, though. You know, I mean, like in some respects they're incredibly advanced, but in others they're uh, they're very very primitive. You know, it's true. You know, I also want to just bring up how he got to the future because I thought it was very very funny that the the opening fifteen minutes of this movie are they're going to send him up into space. Because they have got this like sick ass plane. The whole first 15 minutes of this movie felt like Top Gun, especially Top Gun <laughs> Maverick. As he's walking around the airfield, it looks like yeah. he's salivating at the sights of all of these men at work, you know, working on their planes. He's like obsessed with the technology. And they've got this plane that they say I think can go up to like 5,000 miles per hour. But this big experiment is well, if we get it up into space, how fast do you think it can go then? And like, that's why they send him up there is to see like, well, how fast truly can he go in this like state of the art plane that we got? And that's the thing. He goes so fast. He like goes beyond 7,000 miles per hour, just keeps going up and up and up that he hits like the angle of space and time in a certain way where his airplane, which I think is probably made out of cardboard paper. as George it's, like, Kuchar. Yeah, very beautiful moment where the plane, the cardboard paper plane splits and there's like a transparent ghost plane that then like goes towards like a different plane of time. We have slipped out of one time sphere and into another. Hell yeah, as they say. I got to give it up to both movies because, you know, I think in a lot of time travel movies, you know, you, you see these moments where they, they really try hard to explain the science behind the time travel and how it could be feasible. And that's, that's something that you will sometimes see movies do. And they'll, they'll go so hard in trying to explain how the time travel works that it, it all like kind of breaks apart. And I think I really appreciated that both of these movies just like do not give a shit about the science behind it and, and no. make only the most superficial sort of explanation. It's just kind of like, yeah, they're movies. It's time travel. Like, let's get on with it. That's not the point here, you know? I mean, I love Primer, you know? And Primer, uh, the the film by uh, Shane... What's his name? Shane. Shane canceled. Yeah. Shane canceled. Oh, he's canceled. <laughs> I forgot about that. But you know, like Primer is one of those movies where they were like, oh yeah, you know, they worked with physicists and they like really like looked into it, you know, and and it makes sense. And it's just so it's just like, who cares, right? I mean, that's not the point. It's like time travel. Ah, oh, you know, it's like our TikTok time traveler guys. Like, ooh, I'm from the future. Like just get on with like a good story. And I think that's what both of these films do. They don't really care about the time travel. It's sort of like, yeah, we're jumping around in time here. Like now we're in the future. Now we're in the past. And, and to me, like that's uh, what makes both of these movies again, very, very, very enjoyable, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess, cause we, you know, we've been talking for a while and we haven't really talked about Klaus Kinski at all. So I guess we should sort of lay out, you know, speaking of canceled, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, baby, we probably should like talk a little bit about, you know, how time travel works and the impetus for it. It's funny thinking about 
beyond the time barrier, it seems like he traveled through time because they just wanted to see how fast a plane could go if they put it in space. Yeah. It was accidental time travel. Yeah, accidental exactly. time travel. In this situation, in Time Stalkers, the time travel is on purpose, but it is like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I would say extremely petty. So when we do get a glimpse into the future in the year 2586 and we've got everybody of course wearing like reflective silver <laughs> outfits like it's chrome it's like spongebob it's the, the spongebob episode it's straight out of a an edgar g olmer movie is it, it, it is. certainly is and klaus kinski is a scientist that has been collaborating with someone on developing a time travel device and they've been working on this project for over 15 years and you know i didn't really like labor over the details when i was watching it but you know what i walked away from was they made it but because of the bureaucracy that was set up klaus kinski was not allowed to just like try the time travel device that they were allowed to make it but they weren't allowed to experiment with it so of course this sends him into a kinski-esque rage listen to me cole this device isn't ours it and all of our research belong to the federation and we've just reinvented the wheel. Be proud of that. I am proud, Kravitz. Perhaps the pride of ownership. Ownership is an antiquated concept. Not coming! I got my blood into this! And now we have it. Look, right in the palm of my hand. Time! We can go back to the past and change it as we wish. Joseph, as your friend and colleague, I'm going to pretend I've never heard you say this. Then I say it again! You are my partner! You don't dictate what I do! And the reason that Klaus Kinski then is ultimately going back to 1886 is because he's trying to kill the like great, 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 great grandfather of the guy he's working with just to like get him out of his way. <laughs> so he's going back hundreds of years because he's like, I fucking hate this guy. I'm going to kill his great, 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 great grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I love it because like, as you said, right, it, it dawned on me that like the whole thing is like he has that, that yes, that Kinski fucking meltdown, you know? <laughs> My family put their blood into this. Like he's screaming <laughs> at the top of his lungs at this guy because he's got Got it. Time in the palm of my hand, you know, I, and I wanted it. it's right here. But I was then thinking like, but he's traveling through time. He, he, he's using the device. So if you got the device and you were pissed off because the guy wouldn't let you use it. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to use good. it. <laughs> so go you're back good. and be like, I'll prove you. I'll fucking wipe your ass out so I can get my hands on the time device. But he's using the time device. To go back and get his get I just basically it all dawned on me that it was like all of this and the elaborate fucking like climax that we'll get into it was over just like a minor bureaucratic scuffle essentially like this guy I don't like my boss you know and again is ultimately solved by him just using it he could just go to any other year and he's fine like that could be the year he decides to like make his base camp year and then he could explore with the device everyone well, cl clearly as the film shows he's he's not of sound mind you no. know I so mean, it's uh, yeah, it's we'll true. chalk it up to that because honestly yeah my question was like why doesn't he just shoot that guy like exactly. why doesn't he just shoot his boss why doesn't he travel to uh, a, a different point in time to kill this particular guy because he picks uh 
a very interesting moment, uh, <laughs> shall we say, yeah. as to when he's going to assassinate this distant relative, you know, of his his future boss. And it is while he's escorting President Grover Cleveland through the Old West in a stagecoach. And this is his his idea. Like, why not go to his house when he's at home? Yeah. You know, it's like. Yes. Did yes. you think of that? Yes, because that's it's it's fucking hilarious that it's like like who you know when they're trying when 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 Professor Buffalo Bill and, and his time travel babe are like trying to piece the whole thing together when they're on their little like investigation through time, like and they're like, what is, what is it about this time in this area? And they're like, oh, they discover President Cleveland was coming through this area, and it's like oh, he's gonna kill the president, he's gonna alter history. And again, it has nothing to do with the president. No. It has everything to do with some guy who's sitting next to the president in a fucking stagecoach. It's like, yes, if it's all about him, why is there this then thing with the goddamn president, you know? And I also love just the fact that it's like of all the fucking presidents too. It's just like one of the most forgettable presidents. It's Grover Cleveland. I know? know. It seems to have been just because this movie came out in 86 and they wanted it to be like a hundred years in the past is my guess. And they're like, well, that's when yeah. Grover Cleveland was around so that he'll have to do for this. I mean, I think it's, I think Cleveland's whole cameo is played for laughs because oh, yeah. he's like, you know, he's this yeah. big portly guy yeah. and like, it's obviously just some guy who's like 30 wearing a fake mustache. <laughs> like, yeah, he I looks think so it, yeah, young. Looks ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You know, Molly brought up a good point, though, that I'm curious if either of you caught this or read this into it. But when Klaus Ginzi is like prepping to go to the past, he has in like a glass case that 1980s Magnum. And I think there were some other weapons in the room. And her Molly's first reaction was like, is this dude like is he also an antiques dealer? Is he like a double of you know professor buffalo bill you know like and that's what i was wondering if maybe part of going to 1886 was because kinski's futuristic character also maybe had an infatuation with the old west yeah because he puts on the duster 600 years in the future so there's yeah it's not developed but like you're right i was thinking that too of like he's got all the gear before he goes back in time. So there is some element of like, yeah, is this a fetish? Does he just like have all these old guns? That's a scene we should get where mm -hmm. we see his gun collection. Because you know? again, it, it goes back to this whole thing about, you know, time travel. And again, like our, uh, all of us, like our interest in, in the idea of going to another era, especially an era that we're like fascinated by, you know, and like, what could you do? What things could you experience? And like, again, he has as he said, time in the palm of his hand, he can go anywhere, do anything. And even if he is a big, like Western enthusiast, it's like, you're going to do all this just to kill your boss. Like, that's it. Yeah. You know, you could do all this stuff and it's just coming down to that. And I suppose that's what makes then the casting of a guy like Klaus Kinski so brilliant because yes. like, Clearly Easily only a deranged, away. Yeah, yeah. Only, a, only a, an incredibly deranged sicko would would do that with what he has, the, the power he has. He know? spends most of his time alone wandering the western landscape with his horse or on foot. And of course we should bring up uh, another pathetic sort of like uh, look into the future. He has a gadget. 
that he's constantly using throughout this film. <laughs> and it's like presented as this futuristic thing. And it's an eyepiece, like a binocular that he looks through. And it just like zooms in a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. do anything. It like has like a distance readout on it. But that's it. And again, Kyle called it out. She was like, that's the best he's got yeah. from 600 years of human technology. Like, we have that. Yeah. You know? Like, she's called it like a rangefinder, man. Like, we had it in 1986. Yeah, we had it then, you know? But I, 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 I do got to say, too, like, I mean, I am a, in, in spite of the fact that he is a very problematic figure, I was, you know, obsessed with Klaus Kinski growing up. Oh, I mean, I love yeah. Klaus Kinski. And I, I have to say, like, this is the epitome of his career. Like, being in movies like this. And again, n- taking nothing away from Michael Schultz, you know, but like Kinski made a career out of being like, you know, if, if, if Edgar Ulmer is like the B movie King of directors, like Kinski's the, the B movie King of actors, you know, this was a dude who aside from his work with Herzog, like made like 180 movies like this and, yes. and a lot Schlock. way worse than this. And in his, in his autobiography, like he addressed that he talked about how he would get offers to be in like a Bertolucci movie or some shit like that. And he's just like, no, no, no. I preferred being in these movies. I liked being in these kinds of movies. And I think it's partly because he is just like a crazy man. And like, he doesn't want to deal with, you know, directors, he doesn't want to have to deal with other talented people or actors. And again, taking nothing away from the other cast or Michael Schultz, like Kinski just loved being in a movie where he could just scream and rant and shout and stomp around and chew up the scenery. And like, no one could rein him in. People were kind of like, Oh, let's just let this guy kind of do all the heavy lifting in this moment. And I love his scenes. I mean, he has such a great presence in this movie and he is just such a, like an extraterrestrial type presence. Like that in that opening, once he starts showing up and and wandering around in the West, like I wanted an entire movie of just that, of just him like gunning down extras with his weird accent, you know? I'm looking for a man, a ganslinger. (laughs) I've been saying that all day. I've been saying that all day. When he says gunslinger, he pronounces it ganslinger, you know? I just got to the train from Tisan, you know? And like, and then yeah, Tracy Walters just being like, let's shoot this fucking crazy guy. Let's shoot this weirdo. Give me whiskey. I'm looking for a man. He has a pair of 45s. Black Ebony handed to the silver star. I'm not the law. Of course you ain't. Law don't show up in this town. I was really actually struck by how violent this film was. I just from like the marketing, I sort of was like, oh, you know, maybe it's like a kid, it's like a kids movie, maybe. Not at all, no. really. A uh, child I, is lit on fire in the first scene. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then when when yeah when Kinski gets to the old west and you get yes of course the legend Tracy Walter calling him out in the street and he just kills three guys and you know it's like off screen ish in the cutting but like throughout the rest of the movie he is blasting people I mean he kills oh, yeah. a, a military official and I was yeah I was really not expecting uh, that element I was like oh Kinski he'll probably rant and rave but like he's he's got a magnum and he uses it uh, a lot a lot kills a couple cops too yeah 
Yeah, he's blowing yeah, people he, away. He goes off. Yeah, he does rave a bit. I mean, he only has like one real scene of true, deep Kinski rage and anger. But when he is, I, I couldn't understand it half of oh, what yeah. he was saying I, in this movie. I missed all of his lines because it's like in, insane. Like, they're so yeah. mumbly. Couldn't get him in for some ADR. Unless you raise as fast as my bullet, I wouldn't try it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's probably pretty true. The movie does have a lot of dubbing. Uh, you could tell when they wanted to fill in some gaps. But he doesn't seem to resent his presence being there, Kinski himself. Like no, he doesn't seem no, to like show any disdain for this film. He's like happy to be there. He's oh, just yeah. <laughs> mumbling because he's like a mumbly guy. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so pronounced because like he's always in his own movie, you know, Kinski, he's always in his own movie. And like yeah. the comparison between like his intensity and William Devane's like, Oh wow, that's what's going on. Oh, that's cool. Let's he go is check really it out. just like smiling through the whole thing, yeah. isn't he? I mean, he's also seemingly enjoying his presence in all this, collecting his paycheck and yes, playing with so. his guns. Looking but... like Rod Blagojevich. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Oh my god. That, I yeah. knew it. There was something like itching in the back of my mind while I was watching. I'm like, what is Devane reminding me of here? Yeah. It's, it's, it's our former guy. Governor, in the yeah. same way that Rod was always just happy to be there, you know, William Devane is is certainly certainly enjoying his time in this movie. I think this movie's like strength is is really like built around Kinski's presence, you know. I mean, he's just he is such a, a dynamic force, and he actually loved westerns. Westerns were like his favorite thing to make, and he always lamented the fact that he he didn't get to make more of them. So I'm sure that. This also added to that, that sure. his, you know, pleasure was was in getting to also play, you know, cowboy a little bit. I like, too, that because most of the Kinski scenes are like him solo, uh, there's a lot of score in his scenes. And the score in this film is, is very 80s corny, but it is by Craig Safin, who uh, famously, to me anyway, uh, composed the final song in Thief. Uh, but also like the theme of Remo Williams. He was like a big 80s composer, synthesizer mm. guy. And the whole film does have like a synthesizer score. So there's like an interesting aspect of the film where it's like all this Wild West shit. And then like Craig Safin just like wailing on the keys. And oh, like yeah. this feels fucking weird. Klaus Kinski, he's got a white duster. He's got like a cream duster. Uh, it reminds me actually of uh, Nicholas Ray's Jesse James movie where the whole, everyone has cream dusters. Mm. Never seen anything like it. It's insane. Um, but it's just so striking, you know? And like, yeah, it is It is definitely a, a strength of the movie, you know, obviously. If this movie had $20 million, it would be one of the greatest <laughs> movies ever made. Like, if they had $20 million, I'm telling you, with like the same people, same plot, but just like... Up the production values. I mean, like up the up the special effects, and don't change anything else. I mean, I think it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Like, really. There are moments that I wonder, though, like if more money was involved, they would be like a little less enjoyable. Because my favorite individual moment 
in Time Stalkers is when Klaus Kinski is like trying to. Oh no, the, oh, man, I can't even remember what's like happening in this scene because it is 1986 in this moment. Maybe he's just like trying to track down uh, the general and he's walking and there's like all this shit in his way, like a whole overpass or a bridge. And he's like, okay, if I go back in time to 1926, I bet all of this infrastructure is like no longer oh, here. Yeah. It's how he does his commando raid. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 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 time commando raid slash time heist, however you want to put it. But but yeah, he like he goes back to 1926. All the infrastructure is gone, and we just have this amazing shot of Kinski like walking down a dusty hill. Just for a huge wide shot of just him in this outfit just trudging on down, and then he returns back to the present. Yeah, and that's clearly also a moment of like, you know, again if you if you're thinking about like time and time heist and time stealing. That's that's that sequence is also a moment of like just stealing time to get this runtime closer to 90 minutes because <laughs> it is an elaborately long sequence to just basically set up that one little device of just him being like, oh, I flipped to 26 and it's all gone. Now I'm back at 86 and I'm inside the the gate or whatever. But it's like it's like four minutes or something like that of him kind of like looking at his device, sliding it back to 1926, <laughs> and then we cut to the, the fence and it fades away. You know, it's like, oh my goodness gracious, yeah. But but I actually kind of liked how drawn out it was as well. Yeah, yeah. There's not a ton of that in Beyond the Time Barrier, though, in terms of like time filler. There is every now and then, but I will say, you know, an hour, 14 minutes, like it's it's pretty tight. All things considered. Yeah, and I should mention, you know, the film was ultimately released initially by this flim flam man who released the (laughs) film in Oregon and promised that his new marketing techniques would make the film a hit and then they went bankrupt. And then the film went into like, you know, uh, the lab, it went back to the lab and that company like put it up for auction and then AIP bought it and recut the film a little bit you know uh they also added the matte shot of the elevator and some other little like things to to round out the movie but ulmer's original version started with the end of the movie so it was then a flashback and then back to the present after he's come back and aip straightened the film out and made it completely linear so there was supposed to be that sort of like hopping um which is interesting uh in I, kinda, a sense. I, I think it kind of works better that way you know for like a reveal you know and yeah. almost like twilight it's, zone i mean reveal. it is fucking shocking uh the reveal at the end right uh and we should i guess you know for if we're getting there uh at a certain point uh in beyond the time barrier uh everyone's plotting to escape They've even got the princess on their side helping them. Uh, And part of their plan to escape is to let all the mutants out of their prison cell. Hear me, fellow prisoners! Hear me, fellow prisoners! You're free! The Citadel is yours! Hear me, mutants! Come out of your pit of death! Our time of vengeance has come! Follow me, soldiers of revenge! I'll lead you to the captain! To food! To freedom! 
and this is when, yeah, we get these, you know, this like quote unquote action set piece uh, of mutants attacking people. And it is, it goes on for a while. I mean, it's like and a it, whole deal. Again, pretty violent. I mean, like yeah. these people are the mutants when they get unleashed. I mean, they are ripping people. Red Morgan, yeah. And I will say, you know, mention time travel, though. I got a feeling that, like, some of those people got tackled more than once. You know, there's a few Uh, scenes of, like... You are correct, my (laughs) friend, There's a few scenes of, like, the same 10 extras just, like, walking back and forth in a a large room to make it look like this place is populated by hundreds of people. And, yeah, it looks like the same, like, five people were attacked by the mutants over and over again. From what I understand... Yeah, like everyone on the crew played a mutant at some point. Mm. Like everyone was pitching in because it really was. They just simply had no money. And, and you know, it was made by a lot of people who'd made lots of big pictures and knew what to do and looked around and said, all right, every, you put on the bald cap now, you know, and uh, they did. Because, again, I want to mention, yeah, Jack Pierce did all the, the, the makeup and, and effects stuff, uh, but not the mutants. That was someone else's department. And there was a great interview I saw from Robert Clark, the actor-producer. He was like, when I saw the bald caps on screen, my heart sank, you know? Like, really Maybe just the like, worst I've ever seen. I yeah, think. well, they also didn't have dailies. That's how low budget uh, this film was, is that it all got shipped directly to the lab and edited later. And so they couldn't even check what they were doing on a daily basis. Wow. And that's what you get, you know? <laughs> yeah. These visible bald caps on all these mutants. Nevertheless, like, it's a great sequence. I think it's, like, very fun, very chaotic. Yeah. Very violent. Everyone's running around. Uh, and then all the scientists sort of start to uh, backstab each other. And this is, you know, goes back to the original point about, uh, you know, what, what, do, what do these people want? Like to go back to their time. The problem being is they're all from different times. And so everyone wants to go back to their time and they start backstabbing each other in a series (laughs) of violent betrayals. Dude, my, I laughed so hard when Markova, you know, first sort of like pulls out her space pistol or something or a knife. I think she has, and she's like, I'm getting on that plane. I'm going to 1973, you know, like, she, she, and then, and then he's like, Clark, uh, um, Major Allison says something like, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're a double crossing cruise and Borman. And as soon as he finishes that line, a gunshot rings out and, and Markova drops to the floor. I mean, instantly, Cruz steps out and just says, Not, Not for long. long. <laughs> I was dying. I was like, that's economy right there. That's yeah. narrative economy at its finest. Yeah, literally one betrayal after another, followed by another betrayal after another, and it results in Tririne getting shot. And essentially, in I mean, it's dark shit. That means that, yeah, this... Society is completely doomed. They're going back to the caves, baby. Yeah. And that's like, yeah, I don't want to say unexpected, but uh, it's bleak. And again, I guess in, in consideration of Ulmer's career, he is known 
of course, for uh, Detour, one of the bleakest, bleakest films ever made. Uh, and you, you feel a lot of doom and despair throughout all his work. But then, yeah, it's like she gets popped and there's this uh, amazing scene where uh, Bill takes her to the Supreme and the Russian guy gets to go for the Oscar uh, in, that, in that scene. And he does it. Now the shadow of death darkens the halls of our citadel. Our bright ray of hope is gone. It is the end of us. Again, I, Andy, I think what you said earlier, it's like, all of these people have have different motives and different goals, but like Ulmer ultimately uh, shows you their perspective and the Supreme, especially who, you know, in my experience, I've gone like back and forth like, oh, is he like, is he okay? Is he not? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, and then, yeah, there's this very just like emotional scene where he's like weeping over the death of of humans forever and you're like damn this shit is so heavy yeah i mean and like again it's it's easy to poke fun at at you know the the production values and, and stuff like that but like you know at its core this is doing what uh so many other great science fiction films do which is sort of using fantasy and using uh you know um futuristic ideas and sets and and action and and drama and stuff to like get at the problems of the present and 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 things that that people are experiencing in in politics in nationalism and and all these sorts of things and so like all these triangles and major allison's plight i mean it it can be tied into i think the 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 insanity the 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 sort of like crushing of the individual at the height of the cold war like caught between you know superpowers caught between different ways of of trying to to map out the future or or rewrite the past or establish authority and dominance and like yes at its core what often gets gets chewed up and spit out people individuals humans and like that's where the sort of like you know the the as i think you described earlier this kind of like warning of this film being like we're all gonna fucking die if we can't work together and i think it's really pointed that at certain moments you know we do have a russian an american a german uh you know a we dutch have guy a dutch guy we have all these different people from all these different areas of the world working together and and there are moments where you're like yes this is exactly what we need you know like we need all these people to come together we've got to get back we've got to fix uh, the world that we have irreparably fucking broken and damaged. And like, this is our lot if we can't get past those things. And so it's fitting that this noir-esque turn is that they do all just cut each other down. Like, it's like, nah, you had it. It was right there. It was right in front of you. You know, whether it's a, a suitcase full of cash or an experimental air- aircraft that can travel through time. Like, we have these things where we all can benefit from them, but we choose our own self-serving goals we choose our own our own selfish desires uh, above all that i would say too again another like tie into both these films is again in their sort of like disinterest with the the logic or the science behind time travel like it was very amusing to me that he was like i'm gonna bring her back with me i'm gonna bring her to the to the past because i was thinking like 
Okay, but if you really break that down, if he goes and he does change the past to prevent the future, wouldn't she just like vanish before his eyes? Dude, she would well, never be born. Yeah, like, look, both of these films have problematic uh, sort of conceptions of how to end. In that sense, Time Stalkers will get will get to, uh, but yeah. Of, uh, so uh, essentially, yeah, Allison flies back home using the formula developed by Dr. Borman uh, to somehow recreate in reverse what he did exactly the first time. And bam, he's back to the present. However, the shocking reveal we mentioned earlier is that he is now an old man. He is aged 60 years makeup by Jack Pierce. Took all goddamn day as long as Frankenstein, you know? <laughs> uh, and he has this craggly old face. He went to the fucking un subterranean future city that makes you old. And he's lying in the hospital and, and there's like a, a totally labored sequence of like, military men moving around and like stock, yeah. stock shots of the <laughs> Pentagon. <laughs> Just guys walking down like hallways. Yeah, know. really padding that shit out. And then it's like, yeah, there's this, you know, very chilling sequence where, uh, you know, he's directly addressing all of these like bureaucrats and military men. And he's like, stop the madness, mm -hmm. you know, basically. Right. It that, is like so stark, especially compared to how bad those bald caps look because the, his old man makeup like looks really great, you know, like I bought it. And again, oh, yeah. like speaking to the sort of like bleakness of Olmer, I, I love the fact that it isn't like definitive. Like he, he warns them, he gives them the message. And even though someone says like, we can basically verify that this is true. Like that this, this cannot be explained uh, away, you know, so he's, he's got something here, like the very final line that like one of these officers says, one of these officials is like, well, you've given us a lot to think about and says it in the most like neutral, cold, professional business like way. So it isn't even that, yes, they're going to stop the madness, you know, call up the Russian premier, get him on the phone, you know, no, it's just sort of like, all right, well, uh, we're going to kick that around a little bit, you know, but <laughs> the idea being that we're, again, all fucked. And I think Ulmer, like, gets that in 1960, that there is no stopping what what has begun. You can't uninvent the atomic bomb. You can't uninvent uh, nations divided against one another. I, I mean, mean, that man saw it all yeah, in his that's life. That's what I was going to say. He was a teenager during World War One. Not that he served, but he was living in of the Austrian Empire mm -hmm. at the time and certainly had a front row seat to it. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, yeah, being a Moravian Jew as well and dealing with the Holocaust and all that, I mean, this man, yeah, he, he was one of those 20th century guys who who saw it all and, and, and thought about it all, you know? And again, it's uh, back to, you know, the reason why people like Ulmer in the first place. Like, he's a, a personal filmmaker, uh, in whatever conditions and, and mm -hmm. to varying degrees of success. But I think you have the concerns of, of him in this film, you know, front and center. And it's almost like he's addressing the audience like at the end, you know, more than anything, mm -hmm. but also sort of throwing his hands up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, 
It's bleak. It's very it bleak. Yeah, I mean, when a character at one point says, I fear our future is done, it hits different with Ulmer. On the other hand. On the other hand, yeah. Flashback to the stagecoach. Well, I will say, you know, it is so funny how we, like, get here to the big reveal at the end because we, we briefly addressed it earlier, but there's, like, a f- just a phenomenal scene where William Devane goes to visit his, like, Wild West expert, Texas John Cody. This is the man who we said uh, sits on a saddle when he's working at his computer, and they, they do ask him, you know, for anything that he can find in his big archive on his computer. This this computer itself houses anything related to the Wild West. All of the Wild West thought all exists on Texas John Cody's computer. And they they look up the town, which I think is a crossfire. Crossfire. He tells him to plug in crossfire in the computer to see what comes up. And a song comes up, the star-handled stranger. <laughs> they play the song, and it it appears on the screen, on this man's computer screen from the 80s. Like a, like It's almost like karaoke. The text appears line by line, and there's this crazy like s- stick art animation for, for a gun that goes off. Yeah, it looks like the fucking Oregon Trail on like, it does. an old fucking yeah. computer. Oh my god, that graphic. Like when the song is playing, unbelievable stuff. Like MS Paint level animation. Like, holy fuck. Out of this world. Outlaws road out of the west up came that sweet stranger and showed him who's best he came out of nowhere in a flash he was gone left them outlaws behind him dead everyone they'd come out of shooting like bees from a hive but the star-handled stranger kept the blue boys alive but then yes in, in the climax of this film that song, the lyrics of the star-handled stranger, they all get paid off. You know, it all comes true. <laughs> we think, we think that when Klaus Kinski is going back in time to kill a man who, like, rode into the scene with his star-handled gun and saved President Grover Cleveland, we think that, oh, when Klaus Kinski shoots that man dead, all is lost. The legend has been erased from history. But no... William Devane steps in, picks up the star-handled pistol, climbs on that man's horse, and himself saves Grover Cleveland. So not only is this man one of the most successful professors uh, of all time, where he has this beautiful home, and maybe he lost his family, but he himself, not, he, like in his obsession, he becomes a man of the West. He becomes a part of the legend itself. The song was written about him. Uh- Again, I, I, I got to say, like, uh, the whole scheme, Kinski's whole plan, like, it's so, <laughs> it is, like, the, the plan that a guy who, like, lives in a padded cell would come up with. Because <laughs> he didn't travel back, as Marsh pointed out, to just kill, certainly he didn't travel back to kill President Cleveland. He traveled no. back to kill Cleveland's aide, Crawford, the great, 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 whatever grandfather of his boss. But again, he doesn't travel back to just go like, all right, I got a 357 Magnum. We're just going to blow this guy's fucking head off. (laughs) He travels all the way back to kill some other poor asshole who saved Cleveland. But that other guy wasn't threatened by this. Crawford. Yes. So... 
I don't even understand why this whole scenario was set up. Like again, of all the times you could pick to try to wipe this guy out, you don't take you take the most circuitous and kind of passive route of trying to assassinate your target. I mean, I mean like maybe the idea is that he doesn't have enough information so that like yeah. he knows that he was at this historic event so he's just going to go to that historic event. As sure. opposed to like any finding out information elsewhere, but again, like really not that hard to just like do what you need to do. But if you got the time device again, you're looking for information. You could just go up to Crawford real casually, like, and just say like, "Hey, like, ten years ago, do you remember what you were doing on your birthday or whatever?" You know, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, well, I got together with all my friends at my house. It was great." You know, sorry you weren't there. Oh okay, cool. And then go in your device and go ten years. In the past, <laughs> kill your fucking boss or whatever at his birthday party. Like, it wouldn't be that hard. He picks, again, the most, like, geez, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. I'm going to have to go wander around the West for six months to figure out where this guy is. Again, I think it's his fetish. It's really just, it's really <laughs> just got to yeah. be that. You yeah. know, he wants to play cowboy. He's playing Red Dead out mm-hmm. there. You know, Like, here's another thing about the movie like not really caring about the logic of time travel because similar to similar to beyond the time barrier you know at the very end uh you know this this woman the 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 time travel babe you know i'm thinking like all right great now Devane's going to hook up with her or whatever you know he's he's again not mentioned his wife and kid fucking once not even to her, like, oh, my life sucks ever since my, my son and wife were, were killed in a fireball. Um, like, <laughs> never once. And then suddenly she's just like, hey, how about I help you out? Right? First of all, doesn't he say, like, take me with you? Yeah. He's like, I want to go with her. He's like, take me to the future. I've got nothing. He's like, there's no reason for me to be here, you know? Like, take me with you. And she's like, whoa, chill, dude. Like, we just fucking met or whatever. Like, how about, how about I take you back to your wife and son, you know, so she takes him to the past. She takes him back to right before that really traumatic event. And I, I, I'm, I'm again, I find it very humorous that it wasn't his idea. It was right. like her idea. So I, I, not only that, but then we go back to the past and then he prevents the accident. He prevents the car crash that killed his wife and son. But did either of you notice that, there weren't two of him. Correct. It was just him. Yeah, this is what I, I I could not get over this because any single time there was time travel in the film, there was this flash of blue lightning and, you know, he comes back as is, uh, like in his clothes from when he was using the device. But yeah. in this situation, we have the footage from the beginning of the movie playing out again. So it's clear that it's like the same man from that period of time and so it's William Devane in the footage we've already seen saying goodbye to his family he walks up to the door of the house and then he turns around as if he has this like realization so not only is she not there it's as if William Devane from the contemporary like the present of time stalkers as we've been seeing it goes like into the body of his old self or she plants yeah. no. the knowledge in him. No, no, no. Here's here's my read on it. I got a different read than you guys. Okay. Um, she takes him to the past. He murders his other <laughs> self 
and just seamlessly slides back sure. in. <laughs> That's what I was reading it as. I'm like, I was like, where's the other, where's the other? So honestly, I was like, where's the other thing? I'm like, oh, I bet it. You know, like, think about it. If you did that in a time travel scenario, you had to go back. You'd be like, all right, now I got the knowledge of the, the future and I've got to just fix this situation. But what am I going to do with my other self? So he takes his six shooter. He guns himself down, you know, when he's, you know, screwing around in his backyard, buries the body. And then... He's there that day. But he also, it almost slipped his mind again, you know? He was just like, oh, shit, right. That's why I came back and murdered my past <laughs> self with this knowledge to stop this thing. Because, again, he didn't really care about his wife and kid, you know? It wasn't right. that big of a deal. And then he was like, I guess I should fix this, I guess, you know? That was yeah. my read on it. <laughs> I like the idea that he had been back for a little bit and he had just forgot. <laughs> I like too that like when he's when him and Georgia are like breaking up because she's like oh yeah it's against the rules like you you can't you can't come with me uh, she's but then she says maybe I'll borrow you in the future though I'm yeah. just like what does that mean yeah I mean you guess Time as good Stalkers too setting up the sequel oh, look right we there. should point out too maybe one of the fundamental problems with this film is that the screenplay is by a guy named Brian Clemens who not only claimed to be directly related to Mark Twain, but is actually English. Uh, <laughs> the guy that wrote this movie knows nothing about the Old West. He worked at like an advertising agency in, oh. in post-war England and then became a TV guy. That makes perfect sense, again, <laughs> with his like depiction of the West. I mean, it is all yeah. uh, uh, Louis L'Amour novel. It's like Not in even, uh, Renoir's no. Crime of Monsieur Long when the main guy writes Arizona Jim, which is like a, <laughs> com just a comic that's like, it's just completely made up gunslinger stuff. You know, speaking of gunslinger stuff, I do you want... Ganslinger. Gans Ganslinger <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I want to shout out, you know, it is, of course, very routine in a sense, uh, obviously, William Devane and, and Klaus Kinski do have a quick draw at the end of the film. And I think Schultz shoots it very, very nicely. It's like got an actual sunset going on. And because it's television and in Academy ratio, he's got these great wide angle lenses on all the shots. And he's going Leone mode, close ups on the hands, doing the low angles. Like, Even it's a, a very split diopter. And yeah, there is a split diopter. I think it's a very like well done scene, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in general. You know, shout out Schultz on See, that one. You did it. Yeah. And that's that's I think where at, at the core of the film, I just kept like slapping my forehead, going like, "What the fuck?" Because like the whole thing that they set up in the beginning laboriously is that William Devane is a is a expert on the West that like he he lives eats and breathes this like he just wishes he could live in that other time he's got his six guns he's a really good quick draw guy and it's like amazing that once he discovers he can travel back through time to this period that he he dreams of you know he he doesn't go like wait I'm going to bring my guns with me. This would be a really good opportunity for me to use my fucking six guns. He yeah. doesn't bring them back. He doesn't like, like live in that period at all. He's just constantly like, like you said, got this like ho-hum smiley guy routine of being like, wow, this looks cool. But I'm like, the, the movie should have been like him immediately being like, this is the moment. 
This is my moment. When it all my pays pathetic, off, useless yeah. life of being a historian of the West who who lectures to his students on papers titled Time Traveler in 1886 question mark? Like, <laughs> like that he doesn't publish. He doesn't just like slide into this time period and become this like legendary gansling he just is like <laughs> like trips into this moment you know and then when she does at the end go like hey you know bye and he's like wait 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 wait. i've got nothing in this time he doesn't say let me go live in 1886 that'd be perfect he's like i'd like to go live in the future <laughs> like i'd like to go live as well, far yeah. away from the west as fucking he possible wants to, he wants to fuck i mean yes he wants yeah. to fuck and then you know and, and again same thing i mean going back to beyond the time barrier when he was there with perrine I, I was thinking to myself like man as soon as he figured out that time travel shit i would have been like I'm, I'm gonna smash this shit I'll, I'll I'll start I'll spark it off for you and smash and then I'm gonna ghost her through time I'm out of here well I, I was thinking like, yeah very simply at a certain point like the solution is clear like get her pregnant and then go home yeah you that's know it. like ev- W for everyone hit it and quit it dude yeah, through I mean, time yeah. Well, it's funny in the in the copy we watched. There's a moment in that hotel pool scene where there's like a weird, inelegant edit, and you can hear like a weird gap in the in the music. I did learn that they they did shoot a little bit more of her in a skin suit in the pool specifically for the European release, oh. so it was a little bit more salacious. So I think the film was even kind of suggesting some of that, you know, him thinking about that perhaps in the in the European version of the film, but not not the American one. Yes. Yeah. It's true. And I'm, I, I, I was, I loved it, dude. I, I love both these movies. I mean, I really, you know, I don't want people to think that I, I hated these movies. I, I loved them for, for all of their, their foibles. I really did. Well, if you guys could go back in time to any time, what would it be? <laughs> back in time to any time. Back in time to any time. I would go back to uh, Barabbas. Wow. <laughs> really? Really? Damn. To like hang out with him? Specifically, yes. Yeah, remember those like wow. drunken orgies? Yeah, like, that I want to be was... one of the crew yeah. at the bar at the beginning yeah. of Barabbas. Um, man, I mean, I guess, you know, as when I was younger, I, I loved the Wild West and I, 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 I've, I've often thought, like, you know, because you'd say like, oh, if it was just me, right? Like, would I want to go to feudal Japan? Like, we saw what that was like. Like, <laughs> yeah. no thank you. So I guess, yeah, I would want to go to the Wild West because I really feel like if you had the knowledge today, man, you would be the, the best snake oil salesman that ever hit. I mean, my family would be set up for life. Jeff Bezos wouldn't be the first trillionaire. I would be the first. That's right. There. That's for damn sure. Yeah, that's a good point. It'd be cool to go to like hang out in the village in the Thirteenth Warrior, like after all the situations with like the crazy bear men, the berserkers was taken care of, and just like living in that cool like wooden village on those misty mountains. It'd be kind of fun, just for a little bit though. That that's part of the time travel <laughs> element. You know, you don't have to stay. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well. When you're thinking about time travel, what are some other films then um, that, that that really tickle your fancy, Andy? That that fulfill your time travel dreams. I mean, man, there's just so many. I mean, I think like cinema is like the perfect platform for um, exploring time travel. Um, it's like cinema itself is is time travel, um, but specifically movies that that feature it, like. Uh, literally, uh, 
I gotta say, I, I love Time Cop. I think Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme fucking rocks. And again, for my my more like adolescent brain, like the the pleasures that you see in the the kind of like anachronistic clashes of of suddenly a guy, you know, robbing a stagecoach in the old west with like an automatic assault rifle. Like look, for the record, I would have picked it, but we did Hyams pretty recently. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah, and, and like it's Peter Hyams. So like, yeah, that movie that movie rocks. I mean, we've mentioned another one that I think is is one of the the most confounding and beautiful and frustrating experiences you can have with a movie, which is uh, Rene's Je t'aime, Je t'aime, that features a man who who gets stuck in a time machine that's gone, you know, that's gone awry, and he has like no control over where he's going, and is forced to sort of get thrust constantly into these kind of traumatic experiences that that he's never able to fully like get his his hands around even with the knowledge of hindsight and and you know Renee does something really like you know of course brilliant with it which is to show you like oh time travel would be horrible <laughs> like time travel would be painful it would be miserable it wouldn't be what you think it is and like Renee is of course one of the great time travelers that's that's out there so so yeah I think on two ends of the spectrum for me those are our, our time travel movies I love. I also love Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. I think that movie is amazing. It's also the first movie my father uh, smoked marijuana uh, in, I mm. guess. My, my uncle Ronnie from Alabama introduced my dad to marijuana and took him to a screening of Time Bandits. And then my dad didn't smoke weed for like 30 years after that. So, <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well... It was Andy's topic this week, mm-hmm. but next week it is Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, Gauntlet listeners, brace yourself for a, a big groan from 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 our two other hosts here, Marsh and Andy, because I'm about to open the door to the study and take us back to, to Ryan's book corner. Because, oh, uh, brother. <laughs> There's there's a book I just finished reading that was pretty good. I actually it's a did movie it. podcast. <laughs> uh, it I I just finished reading the books of Jacob, the uh, Polish author Olga Tokarczuk. I am butchering her last name, um, but she she wrote the Drive Your Piles Over the Bones of the Dead that Agnieszka Holland just recently adapted as Spoor, the film, and uh, this this book is a historical book that uh, centers around a man named Jacob Frank, who was this like crazed man who claimed to be a messiah for the Jews. Uh, he converted to Christianity and Islam, was hopping back and forth between Turkey and Poland and Germany and all over, and he developed this collection of just like followers that were so obsessed with him. He was fucking all of them. He spent all his time just like drinking breast milk and, and really causing a, a ruckus in Poland in the 1700s. And, you know, March, you, you referred back to someone in one of these films today as, as a flim-flam man. And I was thinking about, you know, around this time last year, one of my topics was the chosen one. So I thought, why don't we go in the opposite direction? Let's take a look at false prophets. And I will allow both of you to interpret that however you'd like. Awesome. Awesome. 
great. Uh, I'm ready to follow. It's a long-winded way of getting there, but I, uh, I appreciate the topic. <laughs> you know. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Cruz and Borman think the pay can be prevented if I can go back and inform my people. I truly wish I could believe your reason, but they are using you for their own purpose. They'll bring others. They'll destroy our citadel. But you don't understand. I'm from a time before any of this has ever happened. I must go back. Such things do not exist. Cruz has created these illusions in your mind. As far as I'm concerned, it's 1960. You people can believe it's 2024 or any time you please. None of this is real. It's all an illusion to me. No, my son. You're wrong. Here, touch my hand. These are not real flesh. And these walls, are they not solid stone? And Rirene, you have touched her. Can you say she's not real? Yes, they are all very real things. Draw, After you, sir. <laughs>